Welcome, everyone, to the Talking Reef Podcast. Questions and comments are always welcome. Please send them to podcast at talkingreef.com. And don't forget to visit our website at www.talkingreef.com. Now, here's the show. Welcome to the Talking Reef Podcast, the weekly talk show that brings you topics and discussions on marine and reef aquariums. I'm your host, Rob Weatherly. First off, I just want to start off by saying I'm sorry about last week, everybody, um, but sometimes there's just some uncontrollable circumstances that prevent you from doing the things that you need to do. So, no big deal. We're back for you this week. i uh, got a couple good topics for you. This is probably going to be a shorter show than normal, but that's okay. Uh, these are some kind of some basic level topics, uh, at least the first one is, and it's something that... Uh, was brought up in the forums a while back, and I never kind of never really got around to it. Uh, but it's it's something that's going to be good for anybody that's new into the hobby, uh, at least the beginning part. And uh, it's got some good tips for everybody. And speaking of tips, uh, I've got a audio tip of the week. Uh, this is done by TJ. Uh, he's a forum member and a fellow podcaster who has graciously graciously decided to volunteer some of his time to record and put together some audio tips. Now, this is something that we're going to try to do with TJ on a, I don't want to say on a regular basis, probably a semi-regular basis. It depends on the type of show that the Talking Reef is doing and the format and the layout and so on and so forth. Uh, these types of tips may or may not be included with... Uh, for example, like the series episodes, like the Seahorse series that we're working on in the background and on stuff like the reef keeping shows. But all that said, I'm going to quit talking about it and let's just play this week's tip. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's reef keeping tip. My name is TJ and I will be the host of this new segment. I would like to thank Rob for this opportunity to be part of the Talking Reef podcast, and I look forward to bringing all of you great information to help you in the reef-keeping hobby. First, I'd like to give you a little bit of background information on me. I figure that if I'm going to be giving you tips each week, maybe I should back them up with a little bit of experience. Well, like I said, my name is TJ, and I live in Wisconsin near the Milwaukee area, and I've been reef-keeping for about 12 years. I currently have a 120-gallon mixed-reef tank. I'm very active in the reefing community, both online and locally. My current project is setting up and building an in-wall 210-gallon system, but we're going to discuss more about that later on. I'm also an avid scuba diver, which helps feed my reefing addiction. Imagine having the largest aquarium in the world and being able to swim in it. That's what scuba diving is to me. I also have my own podcast, but it isn't reef-keeping related. In fact, my podcast is a law enforcement-based program, but it is open to all listeners in case you're interested. If you'd like more information about me or my podcast, please go to my homepage at www.podcop.net. That's podcop, P-O-D-C-O-P dot net. But enough about me. Let's move on to what we're going to be talking about in this segment each week. I'm going to be bringing you reef-keeping tips and tricks in each episode. This might include a great cost-saving DIY project, or a tip that can be used to save you tons of frustration, or any other helpful hints that can make this hobby a little bit easier on you. I'm also looking forward to having the listeners submit their own tips, projects, and ideas for this segment. If you have something that you'd like to submit to the show, please send your ideas to tips at podcop.net. 
That's tips, T-I-P-S, at podcop.net. I'm also going to be doing regular updates on my 210-gallon system as I build it out. Not only will there be updates here on the show, but I'm going to be posting pictures and comments at the Talking Reef forums as the project progresses. I thought that following the project would be a great way for the Talking Reef community to see what is involved in setting up a large system, including learning from any mistakes that I probably am going to make along the way. I'm looking forward to the project, and I'm excited to be discussing it with all of you. Now let's move on to this week's tip. This week's tip has to do with acclimating new species, or excuse me, new specimens for the tank. Whether it's fish, coral, inverts, or anything else, we all know how important it is to properly acclimate them before adding them to the tank. The most common method to do this is the drip, drip acclimation process. Now, the common way that uh, a lot of people do this is to take a piece of airline tubing, put one end in the tank, the other end you're going to tie a knot uh, in, and hang that over the bucket or tank or whatever you have with your uh newly acquired specimens and the water they came in and you start your siphon and then you adjust how tight or loose your knot is to adjust the drip rate that you'd like well that works great until you go back and check on your drip line and you find it one has either stopped altogether because the knot was too tight or two it is now free flowing because as the warm tank water is cycling through the line uh, it has loosened up the knot so I found a better way to do this. First of all, I don't like to use just regular old uh, airline tubing for this. I found it to be too flimsy. And what I use is actually kind of a rigid line, semi-rigid line, that is actually used to supply water to automatic ice makers uh, in freezers. And you can get this from any appliance store that sells this type of stuff. Home Depot sells this stuff. Lowe's would sell this. So your local hardware store would be good too. And it has the same inner diameter of airline. Now, you can't tie a knot in it. So what I did, went to my local fish store and bought some airline valves. Typically... They are put in line to an air pump to control the amount of air that the pump is going to pump into your tank. And they're just little simple plastic valves that you can put a piece of tubing on each end. And in the middle is a simple little screw that you uh, turn to open or close the amount of air that goes through. Well, they're plastic, so we don't have to worry about anything leaching into our tank, which is great. So what you do is put one end of your airline tubing in your tank. On the other end, put this little valve and hang it over your acclimation bucket and start your siphon. Then just shut off the uh, valve all the way till everything stops and then just slowly open it until you get the desired drip rate. I like to have about one drip a second usually and uh, that's very easy to do with uh, these little valves. And I've never had a problem using these valves when acclimating new things for my tank. And that is going to be this week's tip. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas, please send them to tips at podcop.net, or you can reach me in the Talking Reef forums. My name in the forums is TJ Cop. That's all one word, T-J-C-O-P. Thanks for listening, and now back to you, Rob.
Thanks again, TJ. And those are some great tips on acclimating and all that stuff. So if you have any questions for TJ about that, you can reach him at the forums. Uh, as he mentioned, his screen name, TJ Cop, and you can give suggestions or feedback on those tips as well. Now, moving on a little bit, let's move into this week's first topic. This topic is going to be on water parameters. Uh, this is going to be a quick rundown of various things that we look for, test out in our tanks, and just some, like I said, some basic ins and outs of, of all the different stuff. So without further ado, let's just get right into the first one that we're going to be talking about. Okay, and the first one we're going to be talking about this week is specific gravity. Specific gravity is a, it's usually referred to along with the uh, salinity of the water, although the measurements are a little bit different if you want to get technical. Uh, specific gravity is the number that's usually read the 1.02 whatever. And the salinity is usually read in a parts per thousand. So you see 35 parts per thousand or so on and so forth. Now, for specific gravity, uh, obviously this is the measure of the amount of salt that's in your water. This is measured one of two ways. First way is using a hydrometer. Yeah, there's a couple different types of hydrometers. These are what new hobbyists usually get because they're cheap, easy to use, and, uh, well, they're cheap. <laughs> the problem is, is that they are not always very accurate. If they are not seasoned properly, set up properly, used properly, read properly, and cleaned properly after each use every single time, then you can have some real bad inconsistencies with them. Um, so what I'd like to do is take a quick moment and talk about those before I get into the details of specific gravity. Now, with a hydrometer, the way it works is you've got a special type of uh, arm that's in there. And the, these are about the swing arm hydrometers. There's floating hydrometers that work a little bit different and are far more accurate. Um, but the common one that I'm talking about here is a swing arm one. Uh, this is going to be a, a plastic container. It's going to have a floating arm inside of it. Now, this floating arm is calibrated to float at a certain level based on the salinity of of the water. Now, the important thing, like I mentioned, is when you first buy one of these, they have to be properly seasoned. And by that, what is what needs to be done, what I mean there is that you usually need to let them sit in, you know, filled up with salt water for, for 24 hours after you buy them. This properly seizes them and gets them ready for use. Failure to do this can cause inconsistent, you know, bad inaccurate readings. Now, after using them, or actually I should just say when using them, uh, there's a, a problem with using these types of hydrometers. And that is when you fill them up, they have a tendency to get little microbubbles stuck on the swing arm. Now, those microbubbles increase the buoyancy of the arm and can cause it to float higher than it should. So using them, uh, you, could, you should give them a good tap a few times before you actually read it. Uh, this will help release and knock off any of those microbubbles and help get a better reading. And then finally, after you're done with it, it's very important that you rinse out the hydrometer with fresh water to make sure that any salt residue is taken off of there. Again, uh, if you leave salt water in there, the water part will evaporate, leaving uh, salt residue on there. That salt residue will harden up. It will essentially, it'll crust onto the swing arm, decreasing the buoyancy of the swing arm, causing it to, again, not float as high as it should, giving you inaccurate readings. So while hydrometers are cheap, they are prone to having problems. Now, if all of those things are noted and taken care of and dealt with properly, a hydrometer is really not that bad of a way to go. They require a lot more use, a lot more water to read, and you know they're not as convenient, um, but they are cheap. So that's what some people want. Now, the next thing is a refractometer. Uh, I'm not going to get into the details of how this works, but essentially it's like a, like a, 
handheld microscope looking thing. Actually, it's like a mini telescope, like a spyglass. Uh, the nice thing is at the end of it, there's a, a, a small plate. You put about two or three drops of, of tank water on that, close it, hold it up to the light, and instant reading. Uh, no swing arms to adjust, no micro bubbles. You only need a couple drops of water. And when you're done, you simply wipe it off. Calibrating is very easily done, so on and so forth. Uh, again, I don't want to dwell on that too much. Uh, the short end is a refractometer is a much easier, much convenient, very portable uh, way to read it, uh, usually being very uh, much more accurate. Uh, there is a, there's a price difference, though. Uh, the hydrometers are going to cost $5, $10. Uh, maybe $15. A refractometer is going to cost you anywhere from $35 to $75, depending on where you go. If you do get a refractometer, you want to make sure that it's noted as ATC, as auto, auto temperature compensating. Uh, this is a problem with hydrometers is that they if you have to do the reading at the right temperature or else it'll read improperly. Uh, refractometers automatically compensate for that and will give you a good reading at room temperature to tank temperature. Okay, enough about that. What about specific gravity? Where do we want to go for when we're measuring it? Now, this is an area that's open for debate, uh, but the general consensus is people like to stick with a, a reading that's right around natural seawater. Now, the salinity of natural seawater is right around 35 parts per thousand, and that equates to about 1.026 and you know, as a reading in specific gravity. And this is best used in a reef tank. Now, in fish-only tanks or fish-only with live rock tanks, a lot of people will use a lower salinity, uh, anywhere from 1.022 up to you know 1.02425. Now, this is acceptable. Um, fish have a much easier ability to adjust to lower salinities. It can actually be less stressful on them to a degree. You know, obviously, you don't want to go too low. Um, but uh, it also helps with various types of diseases and parasites and stuff like that, which cannot survive at those lower salinities. Uh, it's a common treatment for ick to lower the salinity. You know, all that said, you know, where's the right place to go? You know, I keep all of my reef tanks at 1.026, but when I do, you know, clownfish larvae, the, the newly hatched clownfish, I keep those um, actually the same as where I keep my plankton uh, phytoplankton and stuff like that, which is right around 1.019. Uh, it's a little bit easier them, for them to uh, balance the the water on the inside, the salt water on the outside. Uh, it's, it just lowers the stress rate a little bit. So uh, again, you can't really do that uh, with, with reef tanks or anything like that. But uh, again, your target range for specific gravity is 1.024 to 1.026. This is the commonly accepted range, and that's good for pretty much anything right there. All right, now that I just wasted like five or six minutes on specific gravity, we're going to fly through the rest probably pretty quick. But uh, anyways, the next one that I'm going to talk about, I'm actually going to wrap three of them together. And these are the common... Uh, the common tests that we test for on a regular basis. This is nitrate, nitrite, and ammonia. I'm not going to get into the details of those uh, as I've done that probably 100 times on the forums and in past podcasts. Uh, you can go back to the ones on Live Rock, on the sand beds, and all that, and I explain what everything is there. Uh, cycling and even, I think, episode two on the nitrogen cycle. Anyways, um, obviously, these are these are all things that you want to keep at zero. Ammonia is very toxic to, well, everything. 
So a reading of anything above zero is definitely something you want to address. You want ammonia to be at zero. Nitrite is very poisonous to, well, most everything also. Uh, this is something that is usually very easily controlled, and you want to keep this at zero as well. Uh, and the final one, nitrate. Nitrate is not as poisonous to fish as it is to corals and invertebrates. Uh, so for a fish-only tank, a reading of anywhere from 5 to 8 is is acceptable to a degree it's not you know it's not a goal you don't want to work to be there if you have you know optimally you want it to be at zero uh, but uh, you know if you're at five or six seven eight and a fish only tank it's not a reason to freak out you can go ahead and just work at your leisure to get that lowered down do what you can uh, in a reef tank that's a different story you're really going to want to get that down because there's a lot of invertebrates that are hypersensitive to nitrate levels and even a small amount can cause some serious problems so moving on a little bit, uh, we're going to go to another easy one, and this is temperature. Temperature is something that people may not always think about, but it's something important to keep an eye on. A lot of us have our heaters in our tank that automatically kick on and off and you know, as they're needed, and a lot of people don't remember that you need to keep an eye on the temperature of your tank. Heaters break. Uh, if you don't have a backup heater, uh, you know, you might be run a risk of you know, having your tank cool down in the winter or in the summer. If you're not running a chiller or if you are, you want to keep an eye and make sure it's working. Uh, but you want to make sure your tank doesn't overheat or cool off too much. So, again, keeping the eye on this is important. Uh, the, the normal accepted temperature range is between 78 degrees and 82 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, you know, the higher end, there's, there's some, you know, I guess rumors going around or some theories that, Increased temperature will help with, you know, parasitic problems. You know, ick is said to not be able to survive. It actually will, what they say is that it speeds up the metabolism in the life cycle, causing them to die off before the, the, the life cycle can be completed uh, at temperatures above 82 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, I've had, I think, success with this, although the incident that I ran into, I'm not 100% positive that it was ick in the first place. So I can't 100% verify that. Anyways, it's, you know, it's, you know, word of mouth type of thing. But the reality is 78 to 82 for um, most of your reef inhabitants. Now, there are temperate fish. You know, seahorses are going to like a little cooler temperature. So, again, pay attention to the type of fish, species, whatever that you're keeping and adjust accordingly. But 78 to 82 Fahrenheit is the commonly accepted temperature for most generic tanks. All right, what's next? pH. Um, pH, well, this one's pretty simple. Uh, mostly used uh, with a test kit. Some, A lot of people have pH controllers or pH um, uh, digital meters. Uh, average accepted range is about 8 point, or, well, it's 8.2 is where you're shooting for. Uh, anywhere from 8.1 to 8.3 is usually accepted. Uh, and you don't need to worry about, as you get below 8.1 or above 8.3, you need to start really paying attention to what's going on and figuring out why it's swaying so much, uh, so on and so forth. You can check out, uh, I think, the Refugium show. We talked about using Refugiums to stabilize pH, so on and so forth. Now, the next one in our little, <laughs> this is kind of turning into a, a little shotgun series where we're going through these real quick. The next one is phosphates. Phosphates are common when people are using uh, tap water uh, along with other things, and they can come in also from various types of food sources. If you use various flake foods or packaged foods that come, you know, like frozen foods that have like a gel binder, uh, those are usually just 
filled up with phosphates. So for the frozen foods that use the gel binder, which you can usually tell by you look by looking at them, they, they're very smooth and you can it almost has a gel look to it. Uh, the the best thing to do there is to thaw them out. Uh, and rinse them off. One of the things that I use is I've got a an old fish net, a small fish net, and I will put the frozen cubes in that fish net, let them sit there for a minute in some water, and then just rinse them out. You know, I just rinse them out with uh, which is regular RO water or with tap water. Uh, you just want to get rid of that gel binder and get that all off of there. Uh, for the fish foods, it's very common for flake foods to have various types of phosphates in them. I don't know that it's totally that it's possible to get some with zero phosphates, uh, but what you want to do is you want to look for something that is low or uh, does not have you know if you can find them that doesn't have phosphates. Uh, this is something that's usually found in the ingredients. If you look on the back of the container, you'll usually be able to look, read through the ingredients and. While it may not come right out and say phosphates, you'll see something that it'll, it'll look very similar, and you, you'll be able to tell when you're reading it. All that said, the target range for phosphate, this one's really easy, zero. Anything over zero is going to start leading to uh, excess algae problems and stuff like that, nuisance algaes, hair algaes, um, and stuff like that that you really just don't want to deal with. So the next one on our list alkalinity alkalinity has a tie to calcium it has a tie to magnesium it has a tie to ph and unfortunately i'm not going to cover those right now alkalinity is something that you want to measure oh well you know what i didn't really measure, mention the frequency i should probably probably talk about that um actually everything that i've talked about up until this point you want to do eh, on a weekly basis uh, on a monthly basis, once your tank becomes stable, is usually fine. It's 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 best to to determine that you know based on your tank and your situation. Um, alkalinity has got an acceptable range. This is something that's actually measured a couple different ways. Uh, there's two different ways of of reading the value of it. Uh, the first one is megs per liter. It's meg slash l. It's usually what you'll see. The acceptable alkalinity range is about 3.5 to 4 megs per liter. Uh, the other one is known as DKH. The acceptable range is 9 to 11 DKH. Uh, what that stands for is German degrees of carbonate carbonate hardness. And uh, yeah, so 9 to 11 DKH, 3.5 megs per liter. That's really what you want to shoot for on the alkalinity level. Uh, the next one, calcium. Obviously, calcium used by uh, you know corals for, for building and stuff like that, uh, for building the you know, skeleton and stuff. Uh, the, the range that you're shooting for there is 350 to 450, with the target usually being just above 400. Uh, a lot of people, if they get a reading below 400, they'll think it's low. Uh, it's still an acceptable range, but again, your target is right around 400, usually on the, uh, a little above 400. Uh, anything under 450 is acceptable also. Now, to tie directly into that, uh, the next one is magnesium. Magnesium is also something that people don't always think about, but is very important. Uh, Improper magnesium levels can really throw off your calcium levels, just like improper calcium levels can really throw off your alkalinity, and improper alkalinity can throw off your calcium. So having all of these balanced out properly is very important to have a nice balanced system. Now magnesium is, is easiest to say that it should be three times your calcium. So with a target of 400 on your calcium, the target on your magnesium should be about 1,300. 
give or take. Now, like I said, if you've got uh, you know, a higher or lower reading, your proper magnesium level should be three times what your calcium is. That's usually what you want to shoot for there. Now, the next thing that I want to talk about having to do with the, uh, the, the parameters and testing the parameters, I talked about the refractometers and the hydrometers for doing salinity, but all of these other items are usually done using liquid test kits. Now, there are some uh, controllers and electronic meters that can be used for pH and calcium, and there are even ones for salinity too. Um, so those don't necessarily apply here, but for the ones where you're using test kits and test tubes and stuff like that, there's a couple tips. The first thing is that when reading the test kit, it's very important to be reading them under the proper light. You want to make sure that you're, you're holding the test tube up against a white background and that you've got a soft white light behind you. Fluorescent lighting is usually the best for this. Trying to read them with an incandescent bulb, uh, you know, a regular light bulb, usually has a very yellow glow to it and can distort the, or, or disrupt the color of what you're trying to read. It can make it look yellower than it should be. This is important because some of your test kits read in uh, shades of yellow. So you want to make sure that you're working with a with a cool white light. Um, that's usually the you know the type of bulb that you want to find. It's a cool white bulb, and uh, you want to again you want to have it directly behind you, and you want to be looking at the test tube at a flat white background. That's the best thing to do there. Uh, another thing after doing the test, you want to make sure that you're very diligent about wiping and drying out your test tubes. Failure to do this can leave residue inside of there, can leave leftover water, old reagents inside there, and can really disrupt or throw off future tests. So, uh, again, you know, I did, like I said, I wanted to run through some of these, um, you know, help anybody that it doesn't know about them, maybe a refresher for those that do. I wanted to run through quickly, uh, you know, so hopefully that, that covers it. If you got any questions about any of this, let me know. Uh, if you have any tips that we left out, make sure you post them into the thread for this episode and then everybody can learn right along with you. All right, so I've got another topic for you. How about that two-in-one show? It has been a while since we've done a two-topic show. Uh, the next one, uh, the next topic that I wanted to talk about is on aptasia control, little aptasia anemones. Uh, there's one just like it, like the glass anemones. Both of these are usually managed in a very similar way. Uh, these are annoying little pest anemones that, if left unchecked, can quickly dominate your tank. Uh, this is something that you really, really need to be careful of. Uh, there are people that may, you know, you know, grow them in sumps or refugiums. You really kind of want to stay away from that because if you're not careful, they can spread up into display tanks. And if you're not prepared to handle it, you can have an outbreak real quick. So at the first sight of Aptasia, you really want to want to take precautions to get to get rid of them. Well, why would you want to grow them in the first place? Well, they do uh, and are known for taking up excess nutrients. Obviously, they've got to feed on something. Uh, so it's been said that using them as a type of filter in a refugium uh, is, is a good idea. Well, I don't know about a good idea, but it's an effective use of them. Uh, this can be done. And if you've got a method to, to make sure that they, they are kept contained and they don't spread, more power to you. Uh, but that said, let's talk about ways to control them if you do find them in your tank. Now, there's two different ways I'm going to explain this. There's natural methods and unnatural methods. Uh, I'm going to talk first about some natural methods. There's there's a, a handful of known predators to Aptasia uh, that you can use. The, the first two 
are going to be it's kind of in my order of recommendation on, on ways to do this so let's just leave it like that uh, my first recommendation is uh, uh something that most people already know about and it's the use of peppermint shrimp now peppermint shrimp are excellent excellent additions to your cleanup crew they are uh, what's the word? Oppor- opportunistic feeders. They're going to feed on just about anything. They're great uh, for cleaning up your tank, uh, picking rocks clean, uh, and lo and behold, they are great for eating Aptasia anemones. Uh, the the great thing about about the peppermint shrimp is that if and when they do eat all of the Aptasia, they're not going to starve because they eat many many different things. So you can feed them. You they'll continue to survive in your tank after that. And the great thing, or the other great thing about having them in there, is if by some chance more spring up later, uh, there's a very good chance that the peppermint shrimp will still be around. They'll find them and they'll knock them out real quick. So my first recommendation is obviously the peppermint shrimp. This is a, a natural method, and it's. Usually, if you get good peppermint shrimp, it's something that you can put it in there, you know, one or two or three or four, depending on the size of your tank. Just forget about it and never have to worry about it again. Now, obviously, with all natural methods of predation like this, where they have the option of eating other stuff, like the peppermint shrimp, uh, they they eat other things. So you you may unfortunately get into a situation where you may buy one or two of them that just well, they just don't have a, a taste for Aptasia. It, it can happen. Uh, one way, if you want to test this, is when you get the peppermint shrimp, while you're acclimating them, you're going to have them in a container. Well, go into your tank, pull out a rock, or if you can find an, uh, an Aptasia that's like on on the glass maybe, because if you have an outbreak of Aptasia, it's not uncommon to find them on a the glass. If you take a little, little tweezers and, and peel it off there and just drop it in, to the bucket where you're, or the container where you're acclimating the the uh, peppermint shrimp, what will happen is when the peppermint shrimp see it, they'll find it, and chances are they're going to eat it. Now, if you leave them in there, acclimation process for peppermint shrimp is usually 45 minutes to an hour and a half. So if you drop a couple of them in there, and in an hour and a half, they're not gone, then you might have just ended up with a couple of peppermint shrimp that aren't going to eat Aptasia. So you might want to relook at that. Uh, So it's a little trick that you can try there. The other thing about peppermint shrimp is you have to be careful when you go to buy them. It is not uncommon, unfortunately, to find peppermint shrimp labeled as uh, camel shrimp or camel shrimp labeled as peppermint shrimp. So I would highly advise going to the internet and doing some searches on camel shrimp and peppermint shrimp uh, before you go and buy them. There is, a, there is a distinct difference. Once you know what the two look like, you will quickly be able to identify the difference between the two. Uh, peppermint shrimp are, are very good for your tank. They're very good cleanup crews, and they're not going to harm anything. Camel shrimp, on the other hand, can be much more aggressive and, and something you might not want to put in your tank. So again, do your homework on there. Make sure you know what the differences are and be prepared to identify them just in case. The next one that I want to talk about is a fish. It is known as a copper band butterfly. Uh, these are, again, a type of predation. That these fish are going to eat other things too. So uh, the chances of finding one that eats Aptasia, while the, while the chance is good, it's not 100% because if there's other stuff present, they may just choose to eat those. Now, the thing with, with butterfly fish in general, now, again, this isn't a hard, fast rule, but generally speaking, butterfly fish are not reef safe. So you really want to be careful with them. If you do have a reef tank, you might want to stay away from the butterfly fish, uh, whereas the peppermint shrimp is totally reef safe. 
Uh, the copper band butterfly is, while it's a beautiful fish, uh, they need large tanks and usually need to be in fish-only tanks. Um, so again, if you you can risk, you know, if you choose to risk it, that's fine. Usually, fish like this, like these copper banded butterflies, if they're well fed, uh, if they're given good foods every day and they've got a good supply of food, they won't touch your corals. But if they get into a situation where they're hungry, or if you get one that just might have a taste for coral polyps, then you need to watch out because they might start nipping at your coral polyps. Uh, the last on the list is a very, very effective. Um, uh, natural control with Aptasia anemone, uh, anemones, and that's the Bergia nudibranch. Uh, the the issue with the Bergia nudibranchs are that they are, like most, if not all, nudibranchs, they are monolithic feeders. They eat one thing, uh, and in this case, they eat the uh, these pest anemones. And actually, I think the, the Bergias eat a couple different types of pest anemones. I think they eat the glass anemones and the Mahano anemones, I believe, um, but again, the point is, is when you run out of these, they kind of run out of stuff to eat. Uh, so trading them between local reef clubs and fellow hobbyists that need them is a good idea. Um, it's usually not a good idea to buy them knowing that they're going to die when they eat themselves out of, out of food. The other problem is, is they they may not be a hundred percent effective. Uh, Aptasia can grow like crazy and the, the, you know, it's only one or two little nudibranchs may not get them all. They may f- they may get 99% of them before they starve to death. And then, unfortunately, you, you lose them if you don't trade them off to somebody else. And then, all of a sudden, you've got one or two that pop back up and start spreading again. So, um, maybe a combination of these. Maybe the copper-banded butterfly along with some bergia or throw some peppermint shrimp in there and some bergia or all three or whatever. Uh, anyways, you get the point. Those are three Natural methods. My personal favorite is a peppermint shrimp because it's got pretty much all positives and I think very, very little, if any, negatives to them. Uh, moving on to some of the unnatural methods. Now, I just say na- unnatural because they're you know not natural predation methods. Um, one of the methods that I have used, uh, which is which is very effective, very easy, as long as the rocks or items that you need that have the Aptasia on them are removable. Uh, and this is using Kalkwasser paste. Now, what you can do is take some pickling lime powder, put that into a container with a small amount of water, mix it up, and what you'll do is you'll make this like uh, paper mache paste type stuff. It'll just be barely watered down. And then you can use a you know something, some type of applicator, and just smear it right on the rocks. Uh, so if you've got, you pull out the rock, you know where the anemone is, you smear this right over top of it, it's dead. You know, some tips to doing that. Uh, if you put the rock back in there, you'd, you you kind of want to be careful because you don't want to do too much at a time because uh, Kalkwasser can raise the pH in, in your, in your system. And so you want to do a little bit at a time as you go, you know, as you go through it, uh, what'll happen is it'll, it'll put like this plaster coating on it. And after a day or two, you might want to just knock that off because it won't really go away on its own and nothing's going to really grow on that. So you want to knock it off and then stuff will start growing on that part of your, your live rock again. Another method um, is to use Joe's Juice, and this is a commercial product that's available that is usually injected directly into the anemones. Now, the good thing about this is it is very, very effective. The bad thing is they have to be applied to the anemones one at a time. So if you've got a tank that's just dominated, I mean, you could literally be there for 
ever trying to poke and prod at all these. Um, so this, like the the next two methods that I'm going to mention, are very effective if you can get in there and actually do it. Um, the next one is using the same exact method, only with vinegar. You can use vinegar and inject vinegar directly into uh, into the anemones. Uh, and, and you can also use uh, lemon juice. So Joe's juice, lemon juice, vinegar, and last on the list is boiling water or near boiling water. Uh, what you do, again, is you, you get some type of syringe. You inject it right into the base of, of them or right through the mouth of them. The problem, the other problem with doing it this way, is that as soon as you get close to them and touch them, you have to inject them. Um, otherwise, they they squeeze up and they suck themselves back into the rock and they're kind of lost. And you're going to have a really hard time finding them to poke them. Uh, so, you know, this isn't the easiest method, uh, but if you can get it, then it is quite effective. So that's going to wrap up the topic on Aptasia. Hope that was helpful. And again, if you've got more uh, tips, natural methods, uh, not natural methods, and you want to suggest them to the community, head over to talkingreef.com or talkingreef.com and post and reply to this thread so everybody can uh, gain from your experience also. Uh, so that's going to wrap it up for this show. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, feedback, uh, make sure you call them in or you can just let me know. Email podcast at talkingreef.com. You can use the uh, comment line on the website, the little blue box on the left-hand side. You can Skype me at Talking Reef. Uh, that's a Skype screen name. And you can use your regular phone at 586-486-3357. That's going to wrap up the show for this week. Thank you all, and I will talk to you all next week with uh, should be the reef-keeping show next week. So I'll uh, talk to you all then. Bye.